adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boasts in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Let's pray. Lord, these words should strike and do strike awe into our hearts because they reflect your majesty, they reflect your power, they reflect the very essence of your, your eternity and your majesty and your glory and your holiness. And they bear witness to the truth that there is none even close to being like you. And Lord, here we are as a people, finite, broken. Lord, a people, though, that were created by you and loved dearly by you. And Lord, even though there is a chasm, there was a chasm caused by our sin nature between us and you. Lord, you loved us and sought us our good by sending Christ on our behalf. And Lord, he willingly laid down the glory he had with you from the eternity past, took on our flesh and became one of us. And on our behalf, paid the price of sin that we could never begin to pay. And Father, for this, we are eternally grateful. And we, as a redeemed and holy people, not because we're good in any way, but because Christ is good and holy and pure. And Lord, it is through him, if we have faith in him, that you see Christ's righteousness in us, though we not, did not deserve that. But because of that, we can stand before you, cleansed and free, to lift our voices in, in word and lift our voices in singing. And Lord, go out from these walls and go into a community that needs to see Christ and needs Christ desperately. So, Father, take our lives, use them for your glory, because, Father, you have redeemed us, you have bought us, we are yours. 
And in this we rejoice and give thanks. Amen. Psalm 1. I'm going to ask, if you can stand, please do. If you can't, uh, uh, please sit. Psalm 97.1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Father, we come before you now together as this family, as part of your your great family, Father. We come together this morning, Lord, and we praise you and we thank you for the joy that comes in the morning. Father, you are our joy. Father, we come together and we confess, Lord, that we are not always who we, you want us to be. Father, when we fall short, when we sin, Lord, we know we grieve you. We grieve your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we ask forgiveness for these sins. Father, for our shortcomings, for when we fail. But our hope, Father, is in you. Father, our hope draws us back to you. Your joy fills our hearts, Lord, when we are in deep sorrow. You fill our hearts with your joy, Father, when we question, when we doubt. Father, when we praise, when we are full of your spirit, Father, it is your joy. Father, help us to be more like your son, more like you. Father, we come together this morning to praise you and together to ask, Father, but also to give. We pray, Father, that as we grow more like you, our lives would be a daily worship and a daily sacrifice to you. That we would drop the bags we pick up when we are prone to wander. Turn back to you, Father. Father, please receive our worship this morning and praise to you who are God and God alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And Brother Paul, Morgan. Now, can you hear me? All right. Yes, I have missed it somewhat, but not in all ways. This morning, as I begin, I, I want to just give you some opening remarks to kind of set the stage, if you will, of what I have to share with you this morning. In 1969, I was 16 years old. I'm surprised I can even remember the date now, but anyway. I was 16 years old, and I bought for the first time for myself a Bible. And it was at that time that God granted to me a gift of love of his word. It literally changed me. And for the last 52 years, I have been a student of that word. Even in the time of my greatest rebellion against him, that love of his word has not left me. And I share that with you, not because it's anything of me, 
But it was and is truly a gift of God that I have this insatiable love for his word. But now that I'm 68 years old, I find myself constantly humbled by how little I know and how little I understand of this great God that we serve. One of the early Puritan preachers, a man by the name of Stephen Charnock, he lived only 52 years. And during his life, he wrote on a single verse that we will look at today, a treatise called A Discourse Upon the Goodness of God. There are 124 pages to that discourse. I reviewed it in preparation for today's message as I did the scripture that we're going to focus in on. But his discourse, even to this day, 500 years plus since he first wrote it, is still one of the most beautiful and comprehensive works on the subject that we approach this morning, the goodness of God. In comparison to men like this, my love for God's word feels almost like contempt. It has been said that the Christians of today stand on the shoulders of the saints of years past. I think it more likely that we are infants still needing to be lifted to their shoulders because we are not even able yet to walk. Why do I tell you this? Because I have a point to illustrate, and this is the point. I cannot do justice in this short message to the subject of the goodness of God. I simply can't. Yet, I desire with my heart to provide you at least a glimpse, a small glimpse of this glorious truth, and I will attempt my very best to give you or offer you a rudimentary understanding of what it means that God alone is good. And then I'm going to commend you to the study of God's word yourself because it's there that God will reveal himself fully to you. Study his word. And then when you want more or need more, need some assistance, check out Charnock's discourse for a fuller study. I'm glad to provide you my copy. So those are the opening remarks. I've set it up so you're not expecting too much from me. Um, and I think that's the right place for us to be. But I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 1006. And as John is often saying to us, if you don't own a Bible, you are welcome to take that pew Bible with you. It would give us great joy to know that these Bibles that we have purchased are in the hands of those who need them. So as we begin to read, God's infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient word, let us stand. 
beginning in the 17th verse of Mark chapter 10. And as he, that is Christ, was setting out on his journey, a little commentary, this is his final journey to Jerusalem. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions may the lord bless the reading of this word bow with me in prayer <clears throat> Heavenly Father, this morning I, I come before you aware of the majesty that is you and your word and humble that I should stand in this place and try to expound it to these people who have come to this place this day to worship you. And so I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight this day, O oh Lord, our God and our Redeemer. In the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> because this subject the goodness of God is so vast, I will narrow our approach to it to, two, to just four questions. There is no way these are exhaustive. And if while I'm studying these together with you this morning, you have additional questions, you're welcome to see John on Monday morning. The questions I want to ask and then attempt to answer this morning are, why does Jesus take issue with this man's greeting? What is good? And how do we know that God alone is good? And knowing these things, why do we care? Why is it important for us to understand them? The first question is, why does Jesus take issue with this greeting? Mark 10, 18. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The statement is true. And it's true of Christ. So why the challenge? Well, my personal opinion after looking at this is that it is because this man has no idea what he is saying. 
or what question he is asking. The fellow in this passage is convinced that he, if he does the right things, or at least enough of the right things, he will be accounted as good and able then to inherit eternal life. In fact, if you look at verse 20, he thinks he's pretty good already. And he said to him, that is to Christ, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Feels a bit arrogant, doesn't it? I certainly couldn't say that. I could say all of these I have not kept from my youth. So he thinks pretty highly of himself. So Christ, out of love for this man, confronts him and shows him that he is in fact an idolater. Notice that the commands that Christ gives him at first do not include the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and you shall have no other gods before me. Why did he start where he started? Because often it is necessary for us to see the reality of our own heart and the arrogance of our own thoughts before we really can accept the truth. And so Christ confronts him. Out of love for him, he shows him that he is in fact an idolater. He would never have believed if he was told at the beginning. Christ shows him that he has broken the first and chief commandment to love the Lord God and to have no other God before him. It isn't good works that this man needs. It's repentance. He needs a good God and a repentance confirmed by selling all of his idols and following Christ. That's what he needed not more good works. Why did Christ take issue with the statement, good teacher? Because this man, in fact, like all of us, think we can be good enough by doing enough good to earn a right to eternity. But God's word makes it very clear, Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Jesus puts the lie of good works not being enough. He puts it to rest. None is good but God alone. The second question I want to try to answer really briefly is what is good? The Old Testament term used for good is the word tov, and it carries both a moral and an aesthetic overtone. We read in Genesis 1.18 and again in 131 that God declares his creation as good and then very good. Beauty and moral perfection together. In the New Testament, the equivalent Greek term used in this passage is the word agathos. It designates an excellence 
that is God-pleasing. Excellence that is God-pleasing. In Christian theology throughout the ages, even to the earliest times, goodness is understood as a comprehensive correlation between the true, the moral, and the beautiful. Let me say that again. Goodness is comprehended as a correlation between the true, the moral, and the beautiful. Is it any wonder that our culture is so messed up? When everything is divorced from truth and morality and beauty, what's hideous becomes beautiful for us. What's true is whatever we think. What's moral is whatever we like. There was a theologian by the name of Carl F.H. Henry of the last century. I mean the 1900s. And he said this, quote, Neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament does one find the humanistic ideal so prevalent in ancient Greek literature, and I would add in our current culture, of beauty as a goal of life and learning. Beauty by itself is not good. End quote. Throughout the Bible, it is God's will revealed in the law that determines the comprehensive content of good. Let me read that one more time. Throughout the Bible, it is God's revealed, God's will revealed in the law that determines the comprehensive content of the good. So good is what God says it is, not what we want it to be. And what God says always corresponds with what is true, what is moral, and what is beautiful. Don't trust me. Do your own study. Just look at the places in Scripture where God calls something good or he calls it not good. You don't have to go any further than the first three chapters of Genesis. And you will see that what God calls good corresponds to what is true, moral, and beautiful. Don't forget those three things correspond. They are interconnected. They are inseparable. They are necessary in order for us to understand what it means to be good. But the larger question for us today is how do we know God alone is good? There are several ways, but the first of those is that God himself has disclosed it. It is the only way we know anything about God. He himself discloses himself. If he had chosen to hide himself, we would have no way of knowing who he is. It is God's sovereign, creative choice to reveal himself to us. We know nothing of God except that which he has revealed. If 
he had made, not made himself known, we would have no means of knowing him. And in fact, in reality, we wouldn't exist. Because in creation, his purpose was to reveal himself and his own glory. And he began this revelation to us of himself when he created and he made the sovereign declaration that everything he had created was very good. That which is not good cannot create that which is. It does not flow. In Genesis 1.31, again, I quote for you, and God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. And the psalmist declares that the wondrous works and awesome deeds of God pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. That's Psalm 145.7. I don't have time to tell you many or all of the ways that God has self-disclosed that he alone is good. Let me just give you quickly some examples. His act of creation is a revelation of his goodness. It displays his being. His tender care for his errant creatures, us. His long forbearance of sin and his benevolent plan to restore all things to his goodness. God alone is good. The comprehensive, incomprehensible, incomprehensible majestic majesty of his redemptive plan. The incomprehensible majesty of his redemptive plan that he himself, God, would take on flesh, the flesh of his creatures, and suffer the wrath intended for us, intended for us because of our rebellion against his goodness. Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and ultimate return to judge the living and the dead are the quintessential revelation of his goodness. There is no higher definition or revelation of the goodness of God than we find in the face of Christ. Secondly, we know that God alone is good by sovereign command. So not only by sovereign revelation, but sovereign command. As creator and sovereign, God alone determines what corresponds to or conforms with his being. And he declares and discloses these to us in his command. And those commands are magnificently summed up in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. I know that you're familiar with them. And by this revelation, this self-declaration of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is beautiful, it is very clear that none is good but God alone. Thirdly, we know that God alone is good because we see that goodness in the face of Christ. 
the eternal Son who assumed flesh and was crucified for human sin. The life and death of Christ shows us the true nature of God as perfectly good. He is merciful, holy, just, gracious, and loving to sinners who are undeserving of any gift, only eternal punishment. God confers grace. We worship a supreme good God. And as the supreme good, God gives himself in the act of forgiving and reconciling and redeeming. I'm quoting from Grant Sutherland in his book, God's Goodness. God alone is good. And now to our final question. That doesn't mean you've only got a few minutes. It just means I'm at the fourth point. Um, why is it important for us to understand the fact that God alone is good? Why? Simply put, because without God as the standard by which good is determined, good is nothing but illusionary. Only in God can true goodness be known, for he alone is good. I want to give you a little bit longer quote from an article written by Carl Henry, the theologian I had mentioned earlier. And here it is, quote, Apart from, and when abstracted from God, good is really nothing. It is but an empty concept into which stuff of a variety of particulars may be placed, many of those particulars conflicting with one another. Good then becomes merely an illusion that speculative sorcerers can manipulate at will. What happens is that a biblically vagabond generation, us, accepts as good what in fact violates the divine command. Manipulators of truth and of the moral and of the beautiful go unchallenged as they thrust upon mankind the cultural vices of the age as though they are something admirable and desirable. God discloses his intrinsic goodness not only by the manifestation of his essential nature, which he has done through his word and through creation, and by the sovereign declaration that he passed at the time of creation, declaring everything that he had created was good, but also by the fact that his will and commands define the content of good and evil for his creatures, end quote. Without the knowledge that God alone is good, 
Good becomes whatever the latest fad wants us to think it is. It is nothing but illusion. And all illusionary good is easily manipulated by the loudest cultural voices and the lusts of men's own hearts. You cannot find anywhere in Scripture the current cultural idea that good can be determined by one's own whim or conscience. It does not exist. You do not find it. You do find it everywhere in our culture. And we have borrowed it from previous cultures and the ancient Greeks themselves. But I fear that even within the church itself, we find a tendency to embrace as good what God has forbidden. There is a drive within the church, universal, or should I say commercial, to appease evil by embracing what God has forbidden and to attempt to manipulate people into salvation through experiences instead of through repentance and faith in Christ alone. And we fail to call to obedience those who would follow him. These efforts are nothing more than an affront to the goodness of God. What God declares and commands determines what is good. And all of his declarations and commands come from his very being and are as he is good. He alone is good. In him alone, his essential nature is good. His revealed character is good. The source of his benevolence toward us His created being is a revelation of his goodness. He alone is true, morally perfect, and staggeringly beautiful. I'm going to ask the following question, but I want you to understand that I asked this question on a blog. If you are here, and you have not yet surrendered to Christ? Is it because you are like the young man in this passage? Rich in the possessions granted to you by the goodness of God, are you unwilling to part with them for the greatest treasure ever known? The greatest treasure of all? Christ? I implore you to repent and turn to Christ. Forsake all others and come follow him. It is the only place you will find peace for your soul. This young man in the passage that we read had no peace. He had deep sorrow. 
He thought by fulfilling the law, he could find eternal life. But Christ made it clear to him that all of the good he did in the world would not erase the idolatry in his heart. He was worshiping at the altar of a false god. I beg of you, do not go away sorrowful. Because Christ asks everything of you. But consider that he, out of his goodness, gave all for you. And believer, let me ask you. At a time when beauty, the arts, music are dominated by commercial sensual and pornographic forces. The temptation to bow at the altar of a strange God is immense. Ever, everywhere we are assaulted. Every day we are at war. And I know what it is to grow weary in the battle. Are you committed to the body of Christ? I don't mean do you go to church occasionally. But are you living and fighting the good fight of faith together with a local body of believers? Or are you just a casual or occasional attender? Are you close enough in proximity to others in the body of Christ that they can see your weaknesses? and help you defend against your vulnerabilities and you theirs? Are you close enough? Or are you removed far enough that you think you can hide? It is not possible to fight the good fight of faith alone. It is not a solo sport. I urge you, reconsider your thoughts about the church, the body of Christ, which he died to establish. This is not the time to give up, nor is it the time to give in. This is not the time to run into a battle alone, unarmed, and naked, wearing only the helmet of salvation. This is the time to join arms together as the true church of Christ and fight on, fully clothed in the whole armor of God. Together, side by side, until the final victory trumpet is sounded and we are gathered to Christ in eternity. May God have mercy on our souls. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you that I personally have known what it is to travel alone. And I am grateful to you that you have shown me the error of that thinking. Even though it meant falling and wounding afresh Christ, my Savior. I pray, Lord God, that these believers gathered here today would count seriously their belonging to the body of 
Christ. And that we would redouble our efforts to shore each other up, to watch at each other's side for the vulnerabilities that Satan would exploit. And that we would stand unified in the body of Christ, ready to fight the good fight of faith, fully clothed in the armor of Christ. And Father, I pray that those who are here this morning who have not yet bent the knee to your sovereign mercy, that you would grant them the call and enable them to do so before they leave this building. And may you and you alone receive all the praise and the glory and the honor forever and ever. Amen.